Good morning and welcome back. Yay. 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 Finally, yes. I can tell you I am enthused to be back with all of you. It was a struggle talking just to a camera and then, and then Russell helped me out the last few weeks. That was great. But I know that it's been a struggle for all of you to sit at home each week as well. So we're very glad that we're able to meet here again together. So let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for your love and your goodness and, and for your watch, care, and your mercy. And we ask that you'll join us today and uh, give us enlightenment as we uh, study your word and we may draw closer to you and be a light in this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson 12 in the uh, lesson study guide, How to Interpret Scripture. And the title um, this week is Dealing with Difficult Passages. And we think about difficult passages... Let's think what makes a passage difficult. And I, and I listed a lot of things here that can make passages difficult. Uh, when it is written metaphorically or symbolically, that can make it difficult. And we don't know the code. We don't have the code key to decode it. And I'm not going to go through a bunch of examples on this one, but examples that we're all familiar with, the Bible prophecies. When we have prophetic things and it's symbolic and we don't know what's the key to decode it, that makes it difficult. But other things that make Bible difficult or Bible passages difficult, taking things literally that are meant to be metaphoric or symbolic or figurative, such as, an example, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. A parable meant to be figurative, but if we take it literally, we get, we get confused. How about taking things the opposite, taking things symbolically or metaphorically when they're intended to be literal? like the seven days of creation being epochs of time or periods of time rather than actual days. We are now going to ascribe some metaphorical interpretation. How about failing to understand one of the various contexts of scriptures, you know, various contexts, the immediate historical context, the prophetic context, the textual context, the, the messianic context, the cosmic conflict context, if we don't understand one of the contexts. Now, i give some examples of each one of these. The immediate context, not understanding the immediate context, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, limb for a limb, life for a life passage in Exodus. If we don't understand the immediate context, which, what's the immediate context? Slaves have just come out of slavery. And that's level one. Level one is the level of a slave. And, and, and what's more right and wrong decision-making at level one? Reward and punishment. Reward and punishment. So who is the one that we want to follow? The one with the most power. So you, it, it, the one with the most power and who can enforce their way, who can punish somebody who doesn't do your way, and who can reward people. Those are the, those are the people that we, we follow. They're the ones in authority. That's level one thinking. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, though, what level is that? That's level two. That's the quid pro quo. And so what we understand in the immediate context is God is taking a bunch of slaves who have been conditioned to react to level one moral authority and something who's powerful and is strong. And, and if I'm stronger than you and I like what you did, well, I can kill you for it because I'm stronger than you and that makes it right. No, you can't. You have to go to level two. You can only kill them or put their eye out if they put your eye out. There has to be some immediate... Um, reference to what's fair and balanced in a level two way of thinking. And so we understand that. But if we don't understand the immediate context of when God is giving this, and we instead read the Bible as 
there is no immediate uh, God, and we don't see God as trying to take immature people and help them mature. We then take the eye for an eye and make it a rule. And then we create social justice on that. And we create a certain philosophy on that. And we see God as the God who will pay back those who have done this. And we have a completely different view of, of Scripture and reality if we don't understand the immediate context of what's happening here. There's the prophetic context. And if we don't understand the prophetic context, we may take the 70 weeks of Daniel and take the 70th week and split it in two and take three and a half years and project it into the future in which we're going to teach that at some time in the future all Christian people are off the earth and the Jewish people again build the temple and begin sacrificing or God's uh, God's people on earth again to be his evangelist and bring other people to conversion. We might create that because we don't understand the prophetic context. We create a false narrative. Textual context. How about if we don't understand the textual context, the context of the text itself? Then we might put a comma in the wrong place when Jesus is talking to the thief at the cross. Or we might insert a word when Jesus talks about he will draw all into himself. We might insert the word man into the textual context and and reduce the cosmic application of Jesus' statement of drawing all in heaven and earth to himself and make it just about human beings. What if we don't understand the messianic context? Then we misunderstand God's actions in the Old Testament uh, significantly when he acted in multiple places to stop Satan's attempt to destroy the avenue for Messiah. Satan is consistently working. The the most important theme to read Old Testament through is Genesis 3, where God says to the serpent, the seed of the woman is coming, it's going to crush your head. The rest of the Old Testament's most important context is Satan is trying to stop that. And God is working to keep that avenue open. And that's why the focus of Scripture focuses where it does. And it keeps narrowing the focus down, if you notice. It keeps narrowing it down, and ultimately to the tribe of Judah. Because that's where Jesus is coming. And so it gives us insight into God's actions in the Old Testament, why he did certain things the way he did, because he's working to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And then the cosmic conflict context. context, Misunderstanding the entire purpose. If we don't understand it, we'll misunderstand the entire purpose of the Levitical law. We understand misunderstand God's use of law in Old Testament times if we don't under... And we'll teach things like in Old Testament times... People were saved by animal sacrifices. But now that Jesus come, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Because we don't understand cosmic conflict context. So that, so misunderstanding the context can make Bible hard. We're asked to answer the question, what makes the Bible passages hard? Any false premises that you hold when you go to scripture. You already believe this, you don't question it, it's the assumption, it's understood to be this way, and thus you read scripture through that, that, that premise. Humankind was created immortal and cannot die. I, I already know that's true. That's a premise. I don't go to ask the question, does the Bible teach it? What does the Bible teach about our mortality or mortality? I don't ask the question, I already know we're immortal. And so I read the Bible in a certain way, I, I, it, there are passages that become hard then. Or, failing to understand God's design law and accepting what I think is the most important false premise, 
God's law functions no differently than human law. Just rules made up requiring the rule giver to punish rule breakers. That's how human law systems work. And if that's the premise, well, that's how law works. That's right and just. It's just that God is more perfect in his knowledge of the right and wrong, and his law is more is more perfect than human laws, but it functions the same way. He's made up his rules. He's given them to us. And they're really for our good. But if you break them, justice requires him, him to punish you. If that's your assumption, you will read Scripture completely, and you'll have many texts that are hard to understand. And that leads to things, or another assumption, these assumptions are based on that assumption. Well, God must use power to punish sinners. That's assumed to be true. If you do wrong, God eventually will use power to punish you, and God uses power to reward the righteous. Or God's justice looks like human justice. How many times have you heard that? Another, another problem makes Bible difficult to understand, failing to study the Bible um, failing to with the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you go to it without asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten your mind and not inviting God into your heart before you study. That's, that's uh, going to make the Bible harder to understand and lead to a lot of false conclusions. Using the Bible for purposes it was not given for. Using the Bible for purposes, it was not given. In other words, using the Bible to be authoritative, to be the last word of final authority on some subject matter that God did not actually enlighten the prophets to enlighten us about. For instance, the Bible is a rule book defining what is lawful and unlawful to do on the Sabbath day. Was the Bible given as a rule book for your conduct and the specific actions you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day? Is that its purpose? Have anybody ever used it that way? And we have lots of division. A justification for the subordination of women to men and wives to be governed by their husbands. <laughs> Consider this historic quote by one of the founders of the Adventist Church. It's very interesting. It's found in eight manuscript release, page 312. Few have correct views of marriage. They make light of this heaven-appointed institution, and after it has been entered uh, into thoughtlessly, without a true sense of its sacredness, the obligations it imposes are often shamefully disregarded. Ignoring the personal rights of women, the husband becomes unkind and authoritative. The individuality of the wife is submerged in that of the husband. She becomes the slave of his caprice and passions, as though she had not to do but to obey his whims. He quotes texts of scripture to show that he is indeed the head and that she must obey um, and, and that he must be obeyed in all things, claiming that his wife must have no will separate from his. He acts the tyrant, but the same Bible that prescribes the duty of the wife prescribes also the duty of the husband. He is to be kind and affectionate, to love his wife as part of himself and to cherish her as Christ does the church. 18, manuscript release, page 312. 
18. Yeah, yeah, what did you think? Isn't that profound? Okay, what law, what law is central in, in addition to the law of love? Okay, what other law is central to what's being described here? Liberty. The law of liberty. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Violate liberty, you destroy love, incite rebellion, and destroy individuality. That's what happens. God's kingdom does not operate this way. How many people have used scripture in this way, using it for purpose it was not authoritative for? It wasn't authoritative to teach men dominating and controlling their wives. That's not what it's for. How about uh, using the Bible as an authority on architecture design, physics, electrical engineering, computer technology, aerodynamics, auto technology, astronomy, and many other fields of study? Is the Bible written to be the authority in any of these fields of study? It's not its purpose. And when people try to use it for things it was not written for, as the final authority, it's okay to say, I wonder what insight the Bible gives about this. But if we use it as the final authority to deny other fields of evidence and truth that God reveals through nature and science, for instance, and we discount that, then we end up with lots of irrational and nonsensical beliefs. What's a good formula or general guide for studying the Bible and coming to accurate understandings? I think the first place to start is humbly surrendering ourselves to God and asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds when we study Scripture. This is a place to start. If we don't start with that, we're probably going to be in trouble. I think God helps the ignorant. I think people who have an honest desire for truth, have been told, never known God, uh, that it's the classic, you know, person who's never had a relation with God, but they've heard through just general society that the Bible might be a source of truth, and that person comes with an honest heart to seek the Bible and study and hasn't prayed first. I think the Holy Spirit honors that honest heart and will help that person because they don't know God yet, but, but what will happen to that honest heart as they read the Bible, they'll be led to the point where they actually surrender their heart to God. Well, isn't that what's going to happen? Yeah, but for those of us who do know God, have already surrendered him, if we go without inviting him in. Decide what one believes is the purpose of Scripture. Make a decision. You've humbly surrendered. What is its purpose? And what is my purpose in going to Scripture? What's its purpose? What's my purpose? Well, I'm going there to prove that person in another denomination is wrong. That's why I'm going. I'm going to prove them wrong. Is that its purpose? Interesting. Uh, here's the purpose that I think is most critical. It's out of great controversy um, in the introduction, um, page 7. It says, in his word, God has committed to men the knowledge necessary for salvation. The Holy Scriptures are to be accepted as an authoritative, infallible revelation of his will. They are the standard of character, the revealer of doctrines, and the test, test of experience. That's very powerful. The purpose of Scripture is to be authoritative in the plan of salvation. 
That's its purpose, not to be authoritative in cartography or other fields of study. Understand God's another important principle to apply after we humbly ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. We understand the purpose of Scripture to help me understand the plan of salvation, which means lead me back to a knowledge of God. That's, that's all part of the plan of salvation. Okay? And then lead me to humble and surrender myself to God for my own healing of heart and mind, character development. That's, that's the purpose of Scripture. Once we understand that, then we understand... God's various design laws as revealed in Scripture and upon which reality is built. And that God's laws are not imperial rules. And then how love functions. I I found a couple of interesting quotes I want to share with you. They're both out of a book called Education. First is on page 99, and it says, The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws, the same great laws that guide alike the star... And the atom controlled human life. Think that through. What kind of laws govern the stars and the atom? There's what control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulating the flow of the current of life to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has jurisdiction of the soul. Can't tell you how many theologians I've talked to and said, oh yes, God is the creator. And oh yes, he has his natural laws, his laws of gravity, his laws of fix. There's no question about it. But his moral laws, they're just rules made up like humans make up. Can't tell you how many theologians try that path. It's a fraud. It's a lie. His moral laws are just as much design laws as all the physical laws. From him, all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation, the condition is the same. A life sustained by receiving the life of God. A life exercised in harmony with the creator's will. To transgress his law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe and introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. What kind of law is being described here? The law upon which life is built to operate. That's the kind of law. Here's the uh, same book uh, a few pages later, about 14 pages later, page 113. I'm going to make some comments as we go through this one. God's healing power runs all through nature. God's healing power runs all through nature. From where does God's healing power originate? Which originates? Which originates? It all originates in God himself. He is the source of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the sustainer of his universe. He is the sustainer of his design laws. He is constantly dispersing himself to maintain and sustain his universe. Energy flows from God out to his creation. This is the law of love built into reality. But sin, what does sin do? Sin transgresses the... Law, the law is the law upon which God built all reality. It flows from himself out and sustains all things in harmony. Sin transgresses or severs or disconnects, puts an obstacle in the way. It gets in between us and God, cutting ourselves off from him. So that's 
part of the problem. So now, continuing on with the quote. If a tree is cut, if a human being is wounded or breaks a bone, nature begins at once to repair the injury. Even before the need exists, the human, the healing agencies are in readiness. And as soon as a part is wounded, every energy is bent to the work of restoration. Pause. When did the energies for man's salvation get, the word here, bent, put into action, laid, created, put into place for our salvation? When did those energies get put there? Before or after man's sin? Before it was created. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God was already bent on our salvation. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. Why was this the case? Because understanding design law, understanding God's character and the nature of his universe, it, God's character and his design is to do what? To promote life, to heal injury, to restore brokenness. That's how he functions. That's the natural outflow if we don't get in the way of God's energies. It's restorative. Continue on with the quote. So it is in the spiritual realm. Before sin created the need, God had provided the remedy. That's exactly the word used. What kind of law is being described? Do you see it? Continue on with the quote. Every soul that yields to temptation is wounded, bruised by the adversary. What? Every soul that yields to temptation is in legal trouble. They have a demerit and a record in heaven. They're under the condemnation of God. They're sitting on a death row sentence waiting to be executed by the Almighty. Isn't that, isn't that true? That's the fraud of the imperial legal system. That's human law. It makes God out to be the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death, when in fact sin severs the connection with the creator, resulting in wound to the soul, wound to the character, searing of the conscious, hardening of the heart, and ultimately results in ruin and death. Every soul that yields to temptation is wounded, bruised by the adversary. But whenever there is sin... There is a Savior. There is the Savior. It is Christ's work to, this is a quote now out of Scripture, it puts it right in this context. This is Christ's work to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus' plan is not to plead to his Father and make a legal payment to the judicial magistrate of the universe so that he will enter a legal pardon in a record book somewhere in a courtroom. It's to actually heal the brokenhearted. Continuing on with the quote. In this work, we are to cooperate. Quoting Galatians 6.1, If a man is over, be overtaken in a fault, restore such a one. And, 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 and that quote of Galatians. Continuing on with the author's quote. The word here translated restore means to put in joint as a dislocated bone. How suggestive the figure. He who falls into error or sin is thrown out of relation to everything about him. What kind of a law is being described? What's sin doing? Is the sinner being described as being in legal trouble or actually being out of harmony with the universe as God's built it? 
continuing on the quote, he, he may realize his error and be filled with remorse, but he cannot recover himself. He is in confusion and perplexity, worsted and helpless. He is to be reclaimed, healed, reestablished. What's the action for the sinner in sin who is dislocated, dislocated, out of joint, out of harmony, apart from God's design? The action is to heal, restore, reestablish, put back in harmony. Do you know a word that you might use on your word processor if you have your margins out of harmony, out of line, and you take an action to restore them to being in line? You know what that word's called? Justify. Justify or justification. That's exactly what Bible justification is. It's taking that which is out of harmony, which is out of line with God's design, with his law, with how he's built reality, and taking that sinner and putting them back in harmony. Writing the law on the heart and mind. Another word comes to mind, at one minute. At one minute. We're at one again. We're at harmony. That's that's, that's good. So he is is to be reclaimed, healed, reestablished. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Only the love that flows from the heart of Christ can heal. Only he in whom that love flows even as the sap in the tree or the blood in the body can restore the wounded soul. Pause. What do you hear? What is the healing agency? Love, which is found in God is not, not loving. You and I, through God's grace, can be loving. God is not loving. God is love. Romans 5, 5, when we, when one to trust and open the heart, it says he pours his love into our hearts. Pours us. He fills us with his love. Perfect love casts out all fear. What's being described, the action taken is love flowing from Christ to his father, to influence his father, to dissipate and assuage his wrath, so the father will also respond to the beautiful love of his son and go, well, if you love them, I'll love them too. Is that what's being described? Do you understand the penal legal lie teaches that? Jesus is in heaven, pleading to the Father, his love for us, to influence him to also love us, or to at least, well, he does love us, that's why he sent his son, but now with the the plea of the son, he can now influence the Father to no longer be wrathful, because justice requires him to be wrathful. That's the justice of the human law model using power to inflict punishment. We understand design law. If God does nothing, if God simply takes no action at all, what happens to the sinner? The sinners die. The wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death, James chapter 1. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction, Galatians 6, 8. So God doesn't have to act for us to die from sin. God has to act so that we are restored and healed. Love, last, last paragraph from 114. Love's agencies have wonderful power, for they are divine. The soft answer turns away wrath. The love that suffers not, that suffers long and is kind, the charity that, that covers a multitude of sins would be, would we learn the lesson with what power 
for healing would our lives be gifted? How life would be transformed and the earth become a very likeness and foretaste of heaven? If we don't understand God's design law, particularly his law of love and how he's built reality to work, his character, his methods, we don't understand that we replace it instead with imposed law, system of rules that require enforcement. Then when we seek to do right, we will utilize Satan's methods. And when we see injustice in the world and our hearts react to that injustice, that's wrong. What will we do? We will use, well, justice requires we hold the wrongdoer accountable. We must use power. We must punish them. And we go down the whole trail of the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, tit for tat. How do we know how to ask this? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. How does that relate to, okay, it's not to appease the anger of God? Beautiful question. We have two law lenses. We go to the text through. What's our assumption? Is our assumption that God's law works like our law, and then without the shedding of blood, God is not legally free to remit or put away or forgive us or pardon us of our sin. Therefore, the blood is the payment made in the legal courts to give God freedom to save us legally. This is how it's interpreted. Another way, though, is if you understand design law, what's the problem? And, and this is what I was taught in medical school. You always start with the right diagnosis. If your diagnosis is wrong, most likely your treatment is wrong. And so is the diagnosis, when Adam sinned, did God get changed? When Adam sinned, did God's law get changed? When Adam sinned, did the condition of Adam and Eve get changed? So the problem is not in God. He doesn't need anything done to him. It's not in God's law. It doesn't need anything done in them. What's now out of harmony? What's not right that needs setting right is the actual condition of humankind. Okay? So so imagine the scenario that you have a child that um, disobeyed your instructions to never mess with the pesticides in the garage. And you might have even give a stern warning. In the day that you drink the pesticides in the garage, you will surely die. Stern warning. And one day you hear a crash in the garage, you rush out, you see your child is frothing at the mouth and seizing with a bottle of pesticide half open and pouring out on the ground next to them. They have disobeyed. What does justice require of you? Do you need to get your belt out and beat them? Well, I told you and I warned you, and the day you do this, you will surely die. Where's my gun? (laughs) Boom! I told you. Got to kill you now. Justice requires it. The imposed law model, that's the idea. You broke the rule. God is now required and restrained by law to use his power to kill you. Oh, no, wait. You've got an older brother. I'll kill your brother in your place, and then I won't have to kill you, and I'll I'll forgive you. Is the problem that the child, is there anything, if this was your child, real story, if it really happened, some poison, maybe it, was, maybe it was medicine in the medicine cabinet instead of pesticides, it doesn't really matter, but you get the idea. If this was your child that disobeyed and, and they were dying of their action, would the child need to do anything to get your forgiveness? Would your forgiveness fix the problem? There you go. The problem is not legal and the, and the consequence is not being inflicted. Your forgiveness is immediate. But what does a child need despite your forgiveness? A remedy and a cure. Let's say they survive that. Let's say they survive the immediate thing. You lavage their stomach. You get out the toxin. But it was enough of an exposure 
They didn't die that day, but because of the toxin, they developed leukemia. And they have an older brother. And their older brother is a bone marrow donor, a match. Could we say, without the shedding of the older brother's blood, there will be no remission of the leukemia? Can we say that? You see, remission means to remit back. When you put cancer into remission, it remits back to its cancer-free, healthy state. Without the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross, sinfulness in humanity would not remit. Humanity would not be restored back to righteousness. And so the cross and and the shedding of Christ's blood at the cross was the means for which God could restore the species human back to sinless perfection. Sin remits. That's the action taken there. So good question. So if we don't understand love and how God's methods function, and then we see injustice in society, wrongs happening, then we want to use the methods of the world, believing in the methods of God. It's right to use infliction of punishment to punish the wrongdoer. We see all kinds of injustices taking place and violence and hurt in America right now. Satan's ways are the ways of division, not unity. My blog this week is The Insidiousness of Sin and God's Remedy. Anybody read it? If you haven't read it, you should read it. The Insidiousness of Sin and God's Remedy. When you have been wronged against, and how many here has never been wronged? When you've been wronged, a sin seed is planted in your heart. A seed of hurt a seed of anger, a seed of resentment, a seed of bitterness. And if that seed takes root, then you will become, you'll ruminate on it, you'll water it, you'll fantasize about the day you can get payback, and you'll make them pay for what they've done for you. And if it takes root, then over the course of time, you begin practicing the very principles that hurt you. And sin spreads from person to person. Only God's methods heal the wounded from the wrongs that Satan inflicts. So Satan loves for Christians to be wronged and then apply Satan's methods in their solution. Because then we're going to go out and we're going to get the power of the state. It's not ours. The law is not in our hands. But we'll elect the right officials. We'll get the right justices. We'll pass the right laws. We will make people pay for the wrong that they've done us. Rather than what Jesus said. What do you say we should do with our enemies? Love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. So that you'll be your, a child, a son of your father in heaven. So in order to know scripture and not be confused, we must know the context, the immediate context, but also the overarching theme of scripture. And we must then harmonize all the scripture together. Other things that can be helpful as we study scripture to not be confused by the various texts, we must uh, understand the battle between Christ and Satan is not a physical one. The battle is not physical. It was not who has more physical might. It wasn't uh, a Star Wars battle with lightsabers 
or flaming swords. It is always a battle for hearts and minds of intelligent beings. Who will you trust? Whose methods will you identify with? Whose character will you form in likeness of? And who will you ultimately give your heart devotion to? This is what it's always about. Satan tricks people into believing they're serving God while they're becoming like him. Understand the Old Testament is primarily the story of God fulfilling the promises of Genesis 3 that the Messiah is coming. That is very clarifying in many stories that seem to be difficult. If you put, go, wait a second. If Jesus doesn't come as, as, as an incarnate human being, no humans are saved. The whole race is lost. Once you understand that fact, so many of the stories of the Old Testament fall into place. You'll see Satan taking actions, trying to derail that process. Understand the Bible records real lives of real people who did real things historically, but many of those historical stories also have metaphorical great controversy applications. We've talked about many of those examples before, from Moses being a, a metaphor of the Messiah, a real person who led him out of Egypt and, and out of slavery, and the metaphor of Jesus coming to lead us out of, of the slavery of sin and so forth. Many metaphorical applications to the real historical activities. Uh, other principles, Scripture must harmonize with itself. We will not find Scripture actually contradicting itself. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Scripture decodes itself. You will find the keys in Scripture to the right understanding of other Scripture, if you study it widely. God's character of love and his design laws never change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So you will never find God uh, acting the role of the villain. Never. If you see him sounding threatening then you should ask, what's the context? And then ask as a loving parent, have you ever sounded threatening to your children? Were you the villain? Or did the circumstances require you to raise your voice and even threaten in order to save a child who was about to run headlong into some destructive danger? God's never the villain. Jesus is the key to understanding God's truth. He's a key. The key. If you want to see the truth about God, look at Jesus. If you want to see truth of the Old Testament sacrificial system, look at Jesus. We're going to clarify very quickly. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. He wasn't talking cannibalism for those who don't know figures of speech. But he is now applying blood of the sacrifice somewhere. Where is he saying it has to be applied? Into the believer. That's where the application goes. Which then all the whole now Old Testament sanctuary service takes on new light. When they were applying it all over the, the, the materials and stuff, do we now interpret, hey, wait a second, this is some aspect of the, the righteousness of Christ is being implied. There's the plan of salvation. This isn't some in, inanimate objects being cleansed in some ceremonial way going on here. These are sinners out of harmony with God's design, partaking of the life of Christ to be restored to God's design. And now we can interpret much of the Old Testament system. But if we teach that the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to take our place under the condemnation of God and be punished by God in our place, and we claim the blood as our legal payment, stamped by, by God on a book of heaven, and that we're legally declared righteous even though we remain unrighteous, if this is the gospel we claim, we're going to misunderstand the entire scripture. Scripture will not make sense to us. The true gospel is the good news about God, his character of love, his design laws upon which he built reality operate, and his 
plan for our salvation carried out in Christ. Sunday's lesson. Look, guys, we just get to Sunday. <laughs> We're back on track, guys. Okay. The lesson is about Bible contradictions. Uh, that's what it's about. Uh, uh, possible reasons for apparent contradictions. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go online. I'm going to look uh, just up what kind of things are, are claimed or put out there. And, and I found here's some contradictions that some people claim are in the Bible. And I want to see how do you handle these contradictions. Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Versus Romans 14.5. One man esteems one day above another, and another man esteems every day alike. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. The critics say, see, the Bible contradicts itself. What's your answer? Right. What was Paul talking about? That's a question. Paul was very generous to the Jewish believers who continued to celebrate their traditions. It's one of the things when I studied this out, I was really impressed by. He was allowing Gentiles to be Gentiles and Jews to be Jews. So then the critics are correct. In the New Testament era, it doesn't really matter what day. All days can be esteemed the same. I'm not saying that. You know it. <laughs> well, we're answering this question, and your answer seemed to suggest Paul was being very gracious, and it's all good. You have to understand that the word Sabbath is used for many things other than the Sunday Sabbath. Well, Paul didn't actually even use that word. He just talked about one esteems one day above another and other esteems another day above that. So let me ask you, it says every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Would we agree as Christians that salvation, it's essential in salvation for a person to come to trust Jesus? Is that true? Okay. Is it also true that every person must be fully persuaded in their mind to trust Jesus? Being fully persuaded in your mind, does that now negate the need to trust Jesus? Well, we, if everybody's going to be persuaded, it doesn't matter anymore. This isn't about which day is holy and which day is not holy. This is about it doesn't, you, doesn't do you any good, even if you identify the right day, if you're not persuaded in your own mind. A person uh, convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. It has no benefit to you. It could even harm you if you are observing the day in some pharisaical, legalistic way. It could be injurious to your soul if you're not persuaded. It could be a violation of the law of liberty such that you begin losing your individuality and love gets squashed out of your heart. I've, I've seen, I will be honest, I've seen people who've come to love Jesus. They experienced him personally and the joy of salvation and they have on fire with love. And then they wanted to get baptized and they went into baptismal training. And they went through all the rules they had to start keeping. They were pointed out all the places that they hadn't uh, done this or done that. And, and then they had to change all these things. And after six months of this forced, not, not persuaded in their own mind, then they did it out of love and joy. These are the rules you've got to keep. By the time they got baptized, there was no joy and light in their heart anymore. They'd been crushed. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. It's not about whether it's actually, there's no contradiction here. No. But this is what they do. Here, let's, let's try another one. If, uh, Ecclesiastes 1.4. The earth abides forever. Second Peter 3.10. The elements shall melt in fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are in shall be burned up. 
All right, I'll go on. That one's a let you let you cogitate on that. There's a whole bunch I've got here, and I want to get through through my time. Genesis thirty-two thirty. Jacob, after wrestling with the angel, I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. John one eighteen. No man has seen God at any time. Or how about this one? John three three. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Revelation 1.7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. Are those who pierced him born again? But Jesus said you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And this says they're all going to see it. They won't see it. Ah. See, they may witness it, but they won't see it. That's right. No, no, this, he's, going, he's getting on it here. He's getting it, yeah. No, this is good. It's good between see and experience. See the kingdom of God. They won't see it. What will they see? Will they see a loving Savior who sacrificed himself and only is grieving in his heart that they don't want to be part of his kingdom? Or will they see an authoritarian dictator coming back with power who is going to kill them? They're going to run and hide and beg for the mountains to hide him from the one who sits on the throne. What do they see? They might see power and might. They don't see the kingdom of love. Okay? So only those who've been born again see the true nature or the kingdom of love. The others might see power, but his kingdom isn't a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. So they don't see it, even though they visually see him. So again, there's no contradiction in Scripture. Let's go on to another one. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19.26. Judges 1.19. The Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. With God, all things are possible. The Lord was with Judah, but he couldn't drive them out because they had iron chariots. Mm, is there a contradiction here? How about this one? Exodus twenty-one, twenty-three through 25. You shall give a life for life, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, in, uh, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Matthew five thirty-nine. Resist not evil, but whoever shall smite you on your cheek, turn him also the other cheek. Uh, aren't we supposed to give a stripe for a stripe and a, and a slap for a slap? Is this a contradiction? Genesis 17.10, this is the covenant which, I, uh, which you will keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. Galatians 5.2, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Is there a contradiction? I'm pointing out, it, it, this is what critics do. This is what critics do. You, you may face this with a critic. You should be prepared for it. Um, one more, and then, then we'll talk about it. Exodus 20.12. Honor your father and your mother. Luke 14.26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children and brother and sister, <laughs> yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Are we, do we, do we identify any actual contradictions? 
What's the problem here? There's a problem. And this is where if you bring some Bible wisdom in, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the good man brings forth good, the good stored up in him, the evil man brings forth evil, the evil stored up in him, the mathematician brings forth math, the music, musician brings forth music. In other words, these critics are revealing to you how they process. They're revealing to you how they think. They're revealing to you the methods that they use in discernment, in reasoning. And what methods do they use? Dishonesty. They're being dishonest with the text. They are not actually trying to understand the meaning of the text. They're using hyper-literalism and concretism to take the words and apply a definition that they want to inflict upon the text in order to create an apparent contradiction. It's dishonesty. These people are dishonest. Or at the very most, they're ignorant and hyper-concrete. And maybe they're honest, but they're so literal and concrete, they actually can't process on the level of, because why? Because they're just depending on their own human reason and they haven't asked the Holy Spirit to enlighten their mind to the true meaning. There are no contradictions. Outside the Bible, just thinking in life and how we interact with people um, politically um, in, in, all, you know, in, in all forms of life, are we guilty of twisting? Yes. I see this every single day. I can't even turn the news on. I can't look on the internet browsers anymore because every single day there is facts taken, twisted to create a construct that is not factually true. I'll give you an example. I'm not taking a political side. It's just an example since you brought it up. (laughs) I was listening to the radio three weeks ago. Sean Hannity was talking to the gun people, saying, look, I'm a gun supporter. I've had a permit to carry in seven states. I've got uh, assault, assault rifles in my own collection. But folks, when you, when you turn out to a, a political rally at a state capital, don't wear your armor and carry assault weapons. It scares people. And it can work against you. People become frightened and they want to pass laws to take those away from you. You don't need them in that setting in a protest. This is what he said. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. And there was wisdom in what he's saying here. I support the freedoms and to have these things, but, but don't frighten the people so that they react in fear and, and then want to take them from you. That's what he's saying. Very wise. Next day, headlines, I won't tell you which news source, read, now notice the headline, Hannity splits with Trump on gun rights. I'll take your That's the headline. Is this an honest depiction of what he said? He didn't mention the president in this thing at all. Is there actually a difference in those positions? Do you think Trump is saying, frighten people, show up at the... He's not saying that. There's no split. What was, what was the intent of the headline? Here's the intent, because most people read the headline, don't actually read the story. Here's the intent. Most people in our society knows Sean Hannity as a conservative. And he's a very, very conservative conservative. But he splits with Trump? Oh my goodness, if the conservative Hannity splits with Trump, must be some freako radical so far out there that not even somebody like Trump, a Hannity can support him. That had nothing to do with gun rights. It had to do with it's establishing in people's minds this, this terror of Trump that he is such a radical, even a, even a Hannity can't support him. This is the deception. I see it, and I ha- see it 
Again, I'm not taking a side. I just can't stand this type of distortion of stuff to manipulate people. And I will tell you the goal of the manipulation, and I'm taking a side here and tell you, the goal of manipulation is to incite fear in people. There are, there are, and again, I'm, you, you pick which side you think's doing it. I don't care which side you pick, because I personally believe all sides in the human system do it. Okay? But the goal is to incite fear, because when you become afraid, what are you willing to do to feel safe again? Give up freedom. When people are frightened, they're willing to surrender freedoms or liberties in order to feel safe. And this is the goal. To take liberty. Because once you take liberty, you can destroy love. This is really the process that's happening. And then ultimately, you create a division in which we have a division on some point. Pick your point. I don't care your point. Pick your point. And then the people who identify with, with option A are divided from the people who identify with option B. And then the fear is driven into both hearts. And they see the people with option B, the op- option A people, see the people with option B as a threat. And the people over here see the other people as a threat. And we're afraid. And what do we, when we're afraid, we have to do with threats. What do we have to do? We have to protect self. Which means what do we do with the threat? We have to neutralize the threat. Neutralize it with some type of law that, that restricts them, or maybe even we have to attack them. Just watch what's happening in society, folks, and the methods being employed. You will see the most venal methods being used. But in most people's eyes, you only have these two choices. And so you identify with one and against the other. So I think the Lord is allowing these things to happen for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear to discern and to reject both sides. To reject them both and to embrace my kingdom is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we identify and practice different principles. We don't get tricked into using the world's methods to promote what we believe is a godly goal. Uh, there's a hand somewhere? Yes, Wendell. There are many books in Christian about the promises of God. It seems like looking at most of the text of promises of God, which are bringing warmth and courage and everything else to Christ's followers, are actually not promises of God. You know, it just seems, you know, Psalms 91. According to Psalms 91, you shouldn't get COVID. You know, there's no diseases in the, you know, that, that get you. Or there's no whatever that, that afflicts you or whatever. And it, it just seems that the, the promises genre is a little unreal. Uh, only when the promises are misunderstood and misapplied. When they're misunderstood and misapplied, this is what happens. And so you get the health wellness gospel. The book of Job is, is not included in our calculation of the Bible promises. Righteous, perfect and righteous in all his ways, no one on the earth like him. That's not, that's not included in. Uh, so what happens is we use the promises through the lens of human law. And if I keep the right rules then God is not, and claim the right promises, now God is obliged. Level two. Yeah, to give me the, the my end of the, I kept my end of the deal, Lord. Now you have to keep your end of the deal. 
And this is what led actually to millions of Jewish people um, giving up a belief in God altogether after the Holocaust and uh, only identifying Jewishness now as a culture or a tribal mentality. We have a tribe, we have a culture. There is no God for many Jews these days. Because of the Holocaust, we, we, we didn't deserve this. So forth. Uh, Monday's lesson, we look at Monday's lesson, it, it talks about the, the point of being honest and the importance of being honest and being able to say, hey, you know what, that's a text I hadn't really considered before, I hadn't looked at it, I'm not sure what that means, uh, I'm going to have to go home and study rather than trying to give a very quick superficial answer that later turns out to be wrong. God is more concerned with an honest heart than a right answer. Do you understand the difference between an honest heart than a right answer? The Jews, when they were asked by King Herod, where is the Messiah to be born? They told him Bethlehem. They had the right answer. Bethlehem is where the Messiah is going to be born. But they did not have right hearts. They were right about which day of the week was the Sabbath. But they were wrong about their hard attitude to the Lord of the Sabbath. They were right on what foods were on the approved list. But being right on these facts made no difference to them. Their hearts were still not right. The Good Samaritan, on the other hand, his heart was right. But as far as we know, he never kept a Sabbath, never ate the right food, never paid tithe, never did sacrifice at the temple. He never was right on all of these things. But his heart was right. Rahab's heart was right. Rahab's heart. That was the wrong answer. Does this mean having right hearts then negates the responsibility of pursuing truth? It does not. It's, it's just the opposite. The person with the right heart has a heart that loves truth, wants to grow in truth, wants to embrace the truth, wants to apply the truth at the earliest possible moment. But it acknowledges the right heart, acknowledges it's about the heart motive, not the actual factual accuracy. Because, here's why, we're finite. At what point in universal history, you can go a billion years into the eternity with a new heaven and new earth, at what point will any of you in here know all truth? <laughs> we never become God. We never become all-knowing. We never become infinite. We always have more to learn, which means even in a sinless universe in the future, we still have more growing to do, more to learn in the facts and the point. But our hearts will be pure. We will have godly motives and principles in the heart. So, in fact, I'm going to suggest we can even come to a time in the future where we can be wrong on things with a right heart. You could see a person like Einstein, if he's in heaven, loving. One of the things he rejoices in is, is complex astrophysical calculations. You can see him working a problem on the board. But it's really complex. And, and any of you who've ever discovered something, is there more joy in just giving the key and knowing the answers or discovery? And which, which helps you grow and comprehend and really go, oh, this is amazing, is when you study it out and understand can you see him maybe having the equation wrong? And maybe he's on it for two million years. 
<laughs> and one day Jesus comes over and, and just makes a little adjustment in one section of the equation. He goes, try it now. Carry the one. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then an epiphany. Can you, can you not see those possibilities and, and apply that across a whole landscape of, of things we don't know factually? We, well, there's tons of stuff we may get wrong in the hereafter factually. But we will, none of us will be wrong in our heart attitude. We will all love God. We will all love each other. We will all practice his methods. We'll live in harmony with his design laws. And we will love truth and be willing to grow in the truth. This is critical. And so there is a knowledge, though, while we may not know all the facts, there is a knowledge that is necessary, and that is John seventeen three, life eternal. They might know you. This is not factual knowledge. See, many of us know about George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump. We know about them. How many of you all know them? Many Christians study the Bible as a biography. And they know all the facts. They can answer all the Bible quizzes. You play that Bible trivia with them, boy, they get them all. That doesn't mean they know God. And this knowing is experiential. It's like... The difference between studying, swimming, mechanics, and theory in a classroom and actually getting in the water and knowing how to swim. Those are not the same. And what, what salvation is, is actually knowing God personally in your heart and then loving and trusting him and having the law written on your heart and mind. There's a bunch of fun stuff in the notes. We're already over time. So uh, we didn't get through it all, so we are back on sync. Yes. The last sentence on that page on Monday's lesson, they are not hurried, but thorough and diligent in their study of the Word of God. I just think that's incredible. They're not hurried. You know, it doesn't make a difference that you don't have the right answer today. Yep, there may be some answers we don't get till the hereafter. Now let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, your truth, and your principles. And in this world where there's so much conflict and and absolutely injustice is happening in this world. Help us to be able to react to them as Jesus would react to them, to see with the clarity of heaven, to have hearts that love like you you love, and with the wisdom to respond in ways that can be peacemakers on this earth and not further inciting of greater conflict and division. And we pray this message of truth and love will go forward into the hearts and minds who are open to hear it and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.